good morning to all of you. It certainly is good to see you here. I approach this morning's topic with appropriate fear and trembling because uh, we are still in James chapter 2 and there is a part of me that would like to kind of move on. I'd like to get on into chapter 3 and just carry on. So let's kind of summarize, and when I say let's, I mean me. I don't expect you to join in. Let's kind of summarize where we're at at this point. First off, thank you for all the good feedback. I've got a tremendous amount of good feedback, and I've gotten a lot of good comments, and a lot of folks who have said, well, is it this or is it this? People have asked for clarification, and I appreciate that. I really like it. These are the kind of messages that can potentially split a church. And so I'm glad that GCA has been grown up enough to just work our way through it. So what am I saying and what am I not saying? Because I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying, but I do want people to understand what I am saying. A couple of weeks ago, we started down this journey into James 2, and I started by saying there are simply things that differ. And I just wanted to kind of get that basis out there, that there simply are things that differ. For instance, I think everyone in this room would agree that the history of Israel and God's dealings with Israel are essentially different than God's dealings with the Gentile church. Would we agree with that? Israel was at Mount Sinai. Israel had a covenant with God. Israel had prophets. Israel had the oracles of God. They had the law, which none of the other Gentile nations had. So we would agree that the history of the Jews and the Gentiles differs, right? right? So far, we're good. Okay, good. Also, the Bible seems to indicate, I, I'm going to take the word seems out of there. Actually, the Bible indicates that the future for the Jews and the Gentiles differs. The Jews are looking forward to the kingdom to come. They're looking forward to David's greater son sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, and all of the Gentile nations that were once their enemies are going to be flowing to Jerusalem the nations of the earth are going to have to come to Jerusalem just to keep a feast once a year. And if they don't, God is going to curse them. So God is continuing to make distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so at some point in the future, Jerusalem is going to be established again. All 12 tribes are going to be gathered again. And Israel is once again going to become the great kingdom that they once were on planet earth. That's what all the prophets say. That's what the book of Revelation says. I would argue that's even what Paul gets at. It's certainly what Jesus seemed to be indicating when he gave his model prayer and said, when you pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, that is the Jewish hope. When I talk about the Gentile church, what are we looking forward to? Well, we're looking forward to the return of Christ and the catching away of the church. Regardless of when you're expecting that, whether you're pre or post or mid or whatever, you still have to agree that Paul writing to the Thessalonians does say that we who are alive and remain will be caught up with those who have already died 
and we will rise to meet the Lord in the air, so will we ever be with the Lord. That is the church's hope. That is what Paul refers to as the blessed hope. Okay, so can we agree that the Jewish future and the church future differs? Can we agree on that? Okay, so all I'm arguing is that in between the past that we agree differs and the future that we agree differs, that when the church started on planet Earth, there was difference, there was distinction. That's really all I'm arguing, is that consistently throughout human history, God has made distinctions between the Israelites and between the Gentiles. Are we still okay with that? Yes. Okay, so last week then, I referred to those by the technical term, I referred to those as differing theologies. And I'm going to read a little bit out of a book this morning that is going to use the technical term theologies to draw the difference between what Paul writes and what James writes. Now, I am not saying that they are looking toward different gods, that their words about God are different gods. I'm not saying that. But when you look at the book of James, for instance, as early as James was written, still you don't find anything in James that is a developed Christology. Do you know what I mean by that? James does not take the time to say, the resurrection is your entire hope. Paul says that to the Gentiles. Paul develops a full Christology later, but James doesn't. James doesn't say the death of Christ forgave all your sins. He assumes that his audience knows that because they know Isaiah. They know by his stripes we are healed. They know that he died and the iniquity of us all was laid on him. He assumes that you know that. You don't need a developed Christology because you're already part of the Israelite group that he's writing to. So you're already familiar with all that Old Testament teaching about substitutionary atonement. But Paul can't assume that with his audience. He can't assume that the Gentiles know any of that Old Testament teaching. Therefore, he has to develop it. And thank goodness he did so that we can have a developed Christology in the Bible and so that we can understand the importance of what Christ did on our behalf. All I'm getting at is what James wrote is different than what Paul wrote. Are we okay with that? Yes. Okay. So with that, I would also like to say that they both agree that works are necessary. There's no question that they both agree on that. The question is a question of, the question is a question of, the question is a question of questions. And then there's going to be an inquiry, and then we're going to scratch our heads. It is a question of priority. Where do they put the priority of works? Paul says good works happen definitely as a result of the fact that we are saved. And this is why for so many years I've been talking indicative imperative here at GCA, so that you understand that Pauline theology says that you are saved, therefore do good works, which he also says God ordained that you would walk in those good works. So Paul definitely says good works. James definitely says good works. The difference in the way James presents the works is that he makes them part of how you are justified. Paul says you're justified without works. James says you are justified by your works. All I'm arguing 
is that those are two different statements. If we understand that, if we agree with that much, and if we agree that James was writing to a different audience than Paul was writing to, then we really don't have a big problem with the book of James. So there is distinction between what James has said and what Paul has said, but they both agree on the importance of Christ. They both agree that salvation is by grace. They both agree that you can't be saved by the works of the law. James is very clear that if you're guilty of any one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. And so he advocates the royal law. So he advocates the law of freedom, language that even Paul picks up. So they both seem to agree that salvation is always a result of Christ's finished work and a result of God's grace. The sole question that lies between them is, where do works fit in? And they both agree that you have to have works. The question is, do your works justify you? And that's about as plain as I can make the argument up until now. Now, this morning, we're going to look at what I consider kind of a, a humorous choice on James's part. As he's demonstrating justification by works, he's going to turn to Rahab. And we're going to read the story of Rahab this morning. But even as a young boy, I knew that the story of Rahab included the fact that Rahab lied her face off. And as a kid, I liked knowing that fact. <laughs> now Rahab becomes the great-grandmother of David. She's brought into the, the community of Israel. She's in the lineage of Jesus. And she lied like crazy. And James chose that as his example. I find that curious because he said those works which she did justified her. So we're going to read that this morning. Now, granted, I expect that James wasn't thinking about the lying part. I'm going to give him that. But he doesn't really develop it. He just mentions her, and then he moves on. Now, this is a book called The New Testament as Canon. You see this big, thick book? It includes the title, An Introduction. <laughs> so from now on, you like that. if you get upset about my introductions, hey, okay? Now, in this book, the author, Reverend S. Childs, takes the time to explain, book by book, the development of the different books of the New Testament and how they ended up in the canon, why they are canonical, why other books are not. And he makes some comments on James that I would like to read this morning because I really think he says it better than I have. And I've taken several weeks at it, and he just kind of lays it out. Now, I apologize in advance because I know there's nothing more fun than listening <laughs> to Jim read, especially the amount of technical language that he'll get into. So I'll try to make it as listenable as possible, and I'm going to try to read three pages to you. So I hope you brought a lunch. <laughs> Buckle up. This, this could take a while. Not really. The epistle of James offers also an important canonical witness in relation to the problem of faith and works. Indeed, the alleged tension between the conflicting theologies of James and Paul on this subject has tended to dominate the entire discussion of the epistle since the Reformation. 
there are three different aspects to the problem which should be considered separately, even though finally they belong together. First, what is Paul's approach to the problem? Secondly, how does James address the issue? And finally, how are the two approaches related within the context of the New Testament canon? In respect to the final issue, the problem does not turn merely on an original intentionality of each author who may or may not have been aware of the other's witness, but on their function within the canonical collection for the Christian who accepts both writings as authoritative scripture. Do you understand that paragraph? We do. We accept both Paul and James as authoritative scripture. So then what do we do with the tension between them? That's what he's talking about. Now he explains the tension. Paul's treatment of the subjects centers in Romans and Galatians and is set within the context of his mission as an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And for Paul, faith is a basic term which expresses the only true human response to the message of the gospel, namely that God has redeemed the world through the death and resurrection of his son. Entirely on account of what Christ has done, man is declared justified through faith in Christ. He is made to share in the new creation, which has already entered eschatologically into the world and which is embraced by faith. Life in Christ is lived through faith and for faith. It is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, which are concrete signs of a new age. Paul can speak unhesitantly of the work of faith in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, but always in the context of an existence utterly dependent on the all-encompassing grace of God who calls forth the new life. The apostle does battle with the Judaizers who threaten the sufficiency of Christ's redemption by demanding obedience to the Jewish law as a condition for justification before God. Paul appeals to the Old Testament as evidence that righteousness has been manifest apart from the works of the law in Romans 3.28 and that Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness in Romans 4.22. It is thus constitutive of Paul's theology that his perinesis is Christologically grounded and is a response called forth in the name of Jesus. We next turn to the subject of faith and works in the letter of James and immediately enter a different theological world. The language is remarkably different, and even when some of the same expressions occur, the meaning is usually distinct. The style of the letter, instructive, ironic, disputational, sets a different context within an overarching wisdom framework, which is reminiscent of the Old Testament. James stands in closest continuity with the faith of Israel, the true witness to which he finds in the teaching of Jesus. He does not carefully define his terms, but assumes that their content is already known. In no sense does James derive salvation from some syncretism of human and divine cooperation. God is the source of every benefit. The believer's calling 
is to respond to the implanted word which is able to save your souls in James 1.21. Indeed, man's need of salvation is a major theme of the epistle. He must be justified before the coming day of the Lord. Wisdom is a heavenly gift sent from above. And like the spirit, it brings forth good fruit, instructing in the hidden eschatological purpose of God. For James, the basic term which characterizes the obedient life is works. The only true response to God in the doing of his word is not his hearing alone, but works. A recurrent issue of the entire epistle is the guarding of the religious life through the trials and the temptations of this world. True faith demonstrates itself in concrete deeds which support the poor against the rich and the meek against the proud. It maintains itself in works of love and awaits God's justification in the coming judgment. James views faith completely from an Old Testament perspective. Faith, pistis, is a commitment to God, a trust which seeks to fulfill the will of God through obedience to his commandments, a submission of one's whole life to God. The obedient response of Abraham combines completely James's faith, James's work, Abraham's faith, Abraham's work. James testifies to the inseparability of faith and works and opposes any theology which plays faith against works. It is generally recognized that James's formulation of the relationship between faith and works has been influenced by the Pauline debate and is not simply a traditional idiom that he inherited from Judaism. Yet the exact relationship between the two writers remains enigmatic and is debated to this day. It remains a puzzlement to explain why James seems so distant from Paul. In spite of the polemical setting of his letter, the actual opponent seems to correspond only vaguely to Paul. The major theological dynamic of Paul's theology in which faith encompasses works of righteousness within the new eschatological existence, which was accomplished by Christ, has been completely bypassed. That's what I said a moment ago. James doesn't take the time to give us a big Christology. James just kind of passes over all of that. Thus, an apparently minor shift in vocabulary from Paul's apart from the works of the law to James's apart from works is actually of major significance and reveals that an entirely different understanding of faith and works is operative. Paul is defending the sufficiency of faith in Christ's salvation against the claims of the law, whereas James is calling for a true faith which is demonstrated by concomitant deeds of charity. James's polemical adversary emerges more as a character of Pauline theology than Paul himself. I'm nearly done. From a historical perspective, it is unclear how James's letter actually relates to Paul. That there is a relationship seems obvious, but to suggest that James is intentionally correcting some misunderstanding of Paul is to go beyond the evidence. Nor is there enough historical information from the early church to paint an exact picture 
of how the Christian communities, which were grounded in Paul's theology, related to the Jewish Christian congregations who would have supported a form of faith akin to that of James. However, it is my strong contention that the issue of relating the two differing testimonies regarding faith and works cannot be left as simply a historical problem. The issue is above all a theological one, which the church has sensed, and its resolution involves the basic problem of the canon. Even if the historical relationship cannot be fully settled, the theological problem remains a lively one for the Christian church, which uses both letters as an integral part of sacred scripture. In his commentary on James, F. Musner has been helpful in summarizing some of the classic attempts to harmonize Paul and James. For example, Augustine argued that Paul was speaking of the role of works which preceded faith, whereas James of the works which followed faith. More recently, the tendency has been to harmonize by dissimulation, that is to say, to suggest the two letters reflect such different historical situations that they do not speak to the same theological problem. But one of the most serious theological attempts in the modern period to address the relationship between James and Paul has been made by several essays of G. Eichholz. After a careful exegetical study of both witnesses, he calls for a different understanding of the function of the canon in order to confront the basic theological issues at stake. Even if you've heard nothing else I've said, here's the summation I want to get to. At the outset, he argues vigorously that the two witnesses, Paul and James, are neither to be harmonized nor historicized. Nor can one resolve the problem of falling back to the hermeneutics of a canon within a canon, which usually functions by using the Pauline categories to correct James's categories. A major point of Eichholz's writing is that the relationship between the two witnesses is not that of two static sets of ideas. Rather, it is between two very different approaches to the subject, both of which entail a complete and discrete dynamic, and they have arisen out of separate historical situations. The differences between James and Paul lie far deeper than different literary conventions or varying semantic ranges of words, rather between different theological streams in the Christian tradition. Eichholz is eloquent in insisting that both bear witness to the one faith in Jesus Christ and that the unity of Scripture cannot be denied in spite of its diversity by any appeal to any theological principle or any reductionist kernel. His own positive solution is he emphasizes the need to retain a freedom to hear and to be flexible in reckoning with the changing fronts to which the biblical authors each sought to respond. Good, huh? I don't know how much of that you followed and how much you caught, but essentially this book says what I've been trying to say for three weeks, which is, the early church simply was not one big unified whole. There were differences between the Jewish church and the Gentile church, and that existed. And the Bible is honest enough to give us letters that were sent to one and sent to the other. And when we read them both, 
We see tension between them, but they both belong in the canon. This is the answer to Luann's question. Aren't they both spirit-inspired scripture? Yes, absolutely. But we have trouble sometimes saying that because people say, but they differ a bit. And they do differ a bit. And it's okay to say they differ a bit. I agree with Eichholz when he says, we just need a little flexibility to understand the situations and the groups that we're being written to. And with that, I think we can finally move on. Now, before we do move on, I, I shudder to ask, are there any questions at this moment? If there are, go ahead and bring them out because I just want us to understand the Bible for what it says. And every attempt I've ever seen to harmonize James and Paul end up changing the language of James or changing the language of Paul or inserting a few extra words or saying things that neither of them actually said. All I'm asking for is the same thing I've asked for since the beginning of GCA. Let's look at the Bible for what it actually says and then deal with the words that are actually on the page. This approach of understanding the historical audiences they were each writing to seems the best solution to me to what's actually on the page. And that's why I've taken these last few weeks to do this. Questions? Okay, then. Never bring it up again. <laughs> no, no. So context matters. Yeah. So context matters. Context matters. Historical context matters. It all matters. We're in the book of James. We're in chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Joshua. We're going to find out what this is about. What exactly did Rahab do and why is James mentioning her? Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly to Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. Now I know your brains are spinning. Why did they go to Jericho and go immediately to the house of a harlot? Chances are that they knew they could go there without drawing too much attention to themselves. Being a public house, it was somewhere they could go and essentially be out of sight. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, 
for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about that when it was time to shut the gate at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So she's got them upstairs, hidden under some straw, and they're on the roof, and she lies to the men of Jericho and says, they've just left a bit ago. If you go right now, you can catch them. So they take off. Verse 6. But she had brought them to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Then before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, who you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, it shall come about that when the Lord gives us the land, that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through a window because her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterwards, you may go on your way. And the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear Unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourselves into your house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in your house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And they departed and they came to the hill country and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they related to him all that had happened to them. 
And they said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given the land into our hands, and all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. Okay, so, so Rahab's faith is that the real God of Israel exists, and he is for Israel. And she sees a distinction between Israel and her own people, because she says, we're melting away for fear of you all. And God's going to give you this land. And all I'm asking is that when that happens, you remember me. And then they tell her, hang a scarlet thread in the window. Now, you can read many, many commentaries. It's just unavoidable that a scarlet thread hanging out of a window is going to look like blood running down the side of a window. And so there are people who have tried to relate that to the covering of blood or the blood of Christ that is covering the woman Rahab. But if you go forward in the book of Joshua, you know the story of how, how Jericho fell. They marched around Jericho seven times. Then finally they shout. They break their lamps. They blow the trumpets. They yell and shout. And of course, everybody in Jericho runs for cover and the walls fall down. You've probably grown up singing songs about it. You've also probably told jokes about Joshua. Here, I'm going to tell you a joke. You can use this later. Who's the only person in the Bible who didn't have any parents? Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I knew you'd enjoy that. Joshua 6, starting at verse 22. After Jericho has fallen, Joshua said to the two men who spied out the land, verse 22 of chapter 6, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all that she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all that she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron they took into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. You see that? Verse 25? That's what James picks up. That's exactly where James intersects with this story and picks up that she, by her work, by the fact that she hid the messengers, he says that's the good work that justified her. Now, I think from a Pauline perspective, because I'm a Pauline kind of guy, if you were to walk up to me and say, how was Rahab justified? I would say, well, the very fact that she seems to know the God of Israel and the very fact that she's willing to hide the spies and lie to the men of Jericho in order to protect her household and in order to be part of the community of Israel and to be on their side, I would argue that it was God who gave her that faith to begin with, that she wouldn't have that knowledge of Israel had God not given it to her. And I would argue in a very Paulinistic way that that justified her. But James argues that it is her works that justified her. And I'm not even arguing with it. I'm just saying 
from a historically Jewish perspective, reading this book, seeing that line, having it jump out at him, I can see why James would say that because it's consistent with everything else James has said and the emphasis that he places on works. That makes sense to me. The end of the story is Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn he shall lay its foundation. And with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up his gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his faith was in all the land. Now go to the book of Romans. Oh, stop it. This is my new iPad, and I still don't know how to work it. Turn to Romans 4. Not only do I not know how to work it, but I think it can hear me when I say things to it like, oh, stop it. Like it's going to go, oh, I'm sorry. I, di- I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> Romans 4, starting at verse 1. We are now going to look at the Pauline theology of justification. I'm going to try very hard to just read these 16 verses because they kind of say what they're meant to say. What then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, isn't that exactly what James said? Mm -hmm. Abraham was justified by his works. So Paul says, for if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. James quotes that. He agrees with it. So James and Paul agree that righteousness is granted to people through faith. The question again is a question of emphasis. Where do you put the works? So the basic underpinning, if I can use this term, underlying theology is the same. It's God that saves by grace through Christ. Good works are part of it. It's a question of where do the works fit? And then you're back to the indicative imperative. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, who does those ergon, who does the the good works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor or through grace, but as what is due. We all understand that. If you work a job, which most people here do, if you do your job and you go to the boss at the end of the day and say, pay me, And he says, oh, no, I thought you did that as a favor. I just thought you liked me. Then you're going to argue with him because you're going to say, no, I did the work. I deserve the payment. Well, Paul is arguing that if you include works in justification, then you're arguing that God owes you a payment. And so his argument is it has to be by grace. If it's by grace, there's no payment other than what God has graciously done. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, as grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, that's an emphatic right there, to the one who does no works, to the one who works not, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. How many of you relate to the category the ungodly? Yeah. Okay, so God, according to Paul, justifies the ungodly for what reason? Because they believe, because they have faith. I've pointed this out many, many times through the years, but I'm going to do it one more time. Don't get sidetracked by the word believes. In the modern world in which we live, we're supposed to give credibility to whatever anybody believes. You can believe that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo, and people are supposed to accept that. Well, that's what he believes. That's not really the word here. In the Greek, pistis is the word for faith. We have a noun for faith. It is faith. What we don't have in the English language is a verb for faith. We don't have faithing. But this is actually the verb form of pistis, pistuo. In the English translations, they've been forced to go with the word believe, but you have to understand it's the exact same word. Paul is saying those who have faith in the finished work of Christ and those who actively faith, those who are actively faithing are the people who God gives righteousness to. But to the one who does not work, but faiths, In him who justifies the ungodly, his, noun, faith, is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon a man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Writing, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then... Upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also. Notice the two categories. There's the difference. There's the distinction again. Paul understands that there's two groups. The early church is made up of circumcised believers and uncircumcised believers. So now he's talking about the gift of righteousness that comes by faith. And he asks the question, is that only for the circumcised? Is that only for the Jews? Or isn't it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? The point is, historically, Abraham believed God that he was going to have posterity before God told him to circumcise his son. So circumcision as a covenant sign was given to Abraham after he was justified by faith. So Paul is going to use that as the basis to say, well, then justification for faith can come to the uncircumcised. The Jews, of course, would argue, no, it only comes to the circumcised. This is a covenant with the circumcised. He's arguing that when that covenant was formed, when that faith resulting in righteousness was established, Abraham wasn't circumcised. He was from Ur of the Chaldees. He was a Gentile. So he argues. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. But how then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. In other words, he's saying The circumcision was a sign, was an emblem of the fact that he already had the righteousness. 
that he might be the father of all who believe, all who have faith, without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. And he's the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham that he had while he was circumcised. So here again, Paul draws the distinction between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. To the Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised. It's fine. Faith is your righteousness. But faith is also righteousness to the circumcised who have the circumcision and have faith in Christ. But he leaves it distinct. He doesn't say, you're all one group now. There's no more circumcision. Or he doesn't say, you're all one group now. Everybody has to be circumcised. He draws a distinction. You're the group that's uncircumcised. You're the group that is circumcised. You both need faith. You both accomplish righteousness by it. And works are not any part of it in order for it to be grace, 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 grace. Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world. In other words, heir of people of every nation, kindred, tribe, not just Israelites, not just Jews. That promise was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law, who are those people? Who are the people of the law? The Jews. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void, and the promise, the promise that Abraham was going to inherit the whole world, people of every kindred, tribe, and nation, that's nullified if, in fact, people keep the law to become heirs of the righteousness of God. Do you understand Paul's argument? For the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, neither is there violation of the law. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promises may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So his argument is, again, it's always faith, it's always grace, it's never works. You can see now why the tension exists between him saying that and James saying what he says. Uh, can I move on now? I, I keep saying this. I, I keep thinking I'm done, and then I go, oh, yeah, but. Oh, yeah, but. <laughs> Romans 10.5 says, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe, have faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. That's the Pauline thought. That a man believes he has faith and it results in his justification, in his righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Titus 3, 4 says, but when the kindness of God our Savior... 
and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. That being justified by his grace, how are we justified? By his grace. That being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in what? In good works. There it is. The Pauline theology is not anti-works. The Pauline theology just puts the works in a different place than James puts them. Now I think I'm done with that subject. Turn to the book of James. That's the end of chapter 2. We've made it all the way through two chapters of the book of James. A few weeks ago when we were talking about the tongue, I read chapter 3 because James actually makes mention of it earlier in the letter. And then it's almost like he goes, oh yeah, I've got more to say. And so he picks up at chapter 3 returning to the idea of watch your tongue, hold your tongue, be careful what you say. Remember that this is all in the context of defending the poor against the rich and the humble against the haughty. Now he's saying within the church, just be really, really careful with your tongue because you can do a tremendous amount of damage with the things that you say. So he starts right out in chapter 3 by saying, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, then we direct their entire body as well. His point being, they put bits and bridles on a horse, and they can get a gigantic horse to do whatever they want it to do, just controlling its mouth. If you control a horse's mouth, you control the horse. So he's getting at control your mouth. If you control your mouth, you control your entire body. Behold the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Your tongue is a world of iniquity, according to James. Okay, let's take a quick test. How many of you have ever done damage with your tongue? How many of you have ever said something that the minute it came out of your face, you went, oh, I want that back? That happened to me about 45 minutes ago. I made a comment about Olivia when she was walking out of here. And I said, she shot me a look. And I shouldn't have said that. It was just me being sarcastic because I'm a sarcastic guy. And I apologize to Olivia wherever she is because I shouldn't have said that. And the minute I said it, I went, just preach. That's all they want you to do. Don't be a comedian. Don't be a wise guy. Don't be nothing from you. Don't. 
just just watch yourself. Don't don't mouth off. And I do it so easily. Yes, sir. I like the son of none jokes. You like the son of none jokes. <laughs> okay, so sometimes it's okay to joke. <laughs> Don't encourage that behavior. Yeah. It's just so easy. James is so right. Everybody can read this and go, man, that's right. I don't even care if you're a believer in Christ. You're going to hear these words and go, that's right. Because there's not a person on planet Earth who hasn't done damage with their tongue. Just so quick to write. And let me add, by the way, okay, your tongue is in your mouth. But when you're on Facebook or YouTube or any social media, hiding behind your keyboard, writing evil things, God knows. <laughs> Just because you're not using your tongue, there are still people out there saying some pretty ugly, divisive things. And God knows you've got to be careful how you talk. You've got to be careful how you communicate. What are we told in the Bible? That we should always be gracious, that we should always be kind, that we are representatives of Christ. And what do we do so often? We represent the devil. We open our mouth and just shout out these ugly things, and then we live the rest of our lives going, man, I wish I hadn't said that. I taught my kids when they were young. My kids would come to me and say, I'm sorry for things they would do. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I finally said to them, you're going to learn as you mature how to hear the I'm sorry coming and not do it before you have to apologize. Because you're going to know, I'm going to have to apologize for this. And sure enough, they've both grown up to the point where they now uh, have governors on their behavior because James is really too big to spank anymore. <laughs> so. I still say I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles our entire body. Have you ever grown up with the phrase? Have you ever heard it as you were growing up? Did your parents ever say to you, sticks and stones will break my bones? I hated that one. Yeah. <laughs> but words will never hurt me. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. Words hurt. Sticks and stones, man, break a bone, put a cast on it, it heals up. But you can say things today to somebody you care about that you can never fix. You can never go back and say, that was a mistake, I'm sorry. Because they'll always remember you said it. They'll know that you have the ability to say it. And now that they know you have the ability, they're going to guard themselves. And that's because you just spilled out your sinful nature through your tongue. And look at what James says, that that part of your body defiles the whole of your body. You might think, well, it's just words. I'm fine. The rest of my body is fine. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I'm fine. The rest of my body, I'm, I'm fine. But sometimes I say things. And James argues that defiles your whole body. The same way that where the law is concerned, a miss is as good as a mile. That if you miss the law at any one point, you're guilty of the whole law. He says the same thing here. 
If you think your body is fine, you think your body's doing good, you think that you're living a righteous and good life, if you're not watching your tongue, it will defile your entire self. So then he says, the tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and it sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. That's true. You can go to SeaWorld and watch orcas do flips. How, how did we teach them that? You can go find animals that we can ride on or take to rodeos. I have cats who I can't teach a thing. Apparently cats are the only animals that you cannot train. But... But outside of that, we've tamed all the animals. Here's his point. After we've trained all these different kinds of animals, no one can tame the tongue. The tongue just spits out vile and sin and the fire of hell, he says. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. And now the imperative, my brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? The answer is no. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? The answer is no. Neither can salt water produce fresh water. Do you understand this point? You've got one mouth, you've got one tongue. There shouldn't be good and evil coming out. Did you ever have any of your school chums ever say to you after you had spoken out some filth and foul, and they'll say to you, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? That was a big phrase when I was in high school. And the point was, how can you let that ugliness escape your mouth and then you go kiss your mother? That's the same idea of what James is getting at. How can you let that kind of ugliness and that kind of evil from hell escape your face and then turn around and bless God with the same tongue? So verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. Now he's turning back to the wisdom literature Verse 13 of chapter 3 is exactly where we're going to pick up next week. And for a little while, he's going to do imperatives, and he's going to say some things that we can all learn from. But then before the letter is up, he's going to get back to the justification by works and law thing again. So if you thought it was over, not quite. But I love the book of James. I think there's so much tremendous theology in the book of James. There are so many things that are helpful to us. I can preach the gospel from the book of James. But we just have to understand it in its context. Okie dokie. Okay. We're good? Good. Good. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Just a comment about in the Torah. It talks about the tongue as of our faculties by design. All our faculties are exterior to our body, except the tongue is internal. And it's hidden behind two walls, one of bone, one of flesh. Hidden behind your teeth and your lips. <laughs> Almost like God's trying to tell you something. Yeah. <laughs>
What's the old adage? You should listen twice as much as you talk. The vast majority of people I know talk twice as much as they listen. Yeah, two years, one mouth. Yeah. And I got to say, as long as you bring that subject up, I get really, 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 really tired of listening to people debate theology who simply aren't listening to the other person. Because as the first person is speaking, rather than listening, the second person is developing his answer in his head. And so he's not really listening. Then he answers, and you can tell he didn't hear the first guy. One of the rules of Greek debate used to be that you could not oppose the other person until you could prove to the other person that you understood his argument. Until you could repeat his argument and explain his argument, you couldn't respond to his argument. And I think we need a whole lot more of that. Because there's a whole lot of people yelling past each other, especially again on social media, but just in debate. I watch online debates, and it drives me crazy because people answer what they want to say rather than responding to what the person has just said. And uh, it's the lack of hearing. It's the lack of listening. What James said just the chapter prior, being quick to hear, slow to speak. It's quick to hear, slow to speak. Yeah. All right. We need to let you go. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.